Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, host of Leading Voices. In my day job, I lead Terra Search Partners, a real estate search firm based in San Francisco. My after hours job is as host of this podcast series, Leading Voices, where we get to explore the work and personal stories of exceptional leaders in the real estate world. Today's Leading Voices podcast is with Marianne Gilmartin, the president and CEO of Forest City Ratner, which is the New York City office of Forest City Enterprises. Marianne has been the lead on some of the most iconic and challenging urban development projects in the country over the past 10 to 15 years, including the New York Times Building, New York by Gary Residential Tower, and Pacific Park Brooklyn, which includes the new Nets Arena. My conversation with Marianne was really fun and insightful. Her personal story and approach as a woman navigating her career through a male-dominated business is compelling, as is her commentary on placemaking and the challenges of development in a high-profile and complex environment. We touched a lot on the meaning of career and the meaning of urban development. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. As always, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast series and feel free to share the series with others. Hey, thank you for doing the podcast, and I'm thrilled to talk to you through the ether here. And this conversation is kind of both about business and both about who you are. So we'll jump back and forth between those topics. And the place to start is always the beginning. So I, I've read about you. You had a tough childhood that would not logically lead one to become the CEO of a real estate company. So talk a little bit about growing up and maybe the story about winning and then not losing your scholarship to Fordham and what that meant for the start of your work life and not home life. Sure. In fact, it's interesting what you say about my upbringing not necessarily preparing me for or leading to a life of real estate development. In many ways, I think because the only constant in my life was change. In some ways, I think it could have been viewed as a training ground for the life of a developer because I learned to be exceptionally nimble and mm -hmm. uh, comfortable with change and chaos. My mother who was raising three girls on her own in their early years, taught us that we needed to make our own way and that our happiness was our responsibility. And in many ways, those those concepts regarding how to live your life are really powerful. And they're particularly interesting in the industry that I'm now in, because of course, if you're not comfortable with change, if you can't be facile and nimble and you want to be a real estate developer, it's probably not going to work out well. So I think that the reason why I can take many, many disparate parts and I can deal with a great Rubik's Cube of real estate development is in large part because of my childhood and my formative years. Uh -huh. I, I think the Rubik's Cube is the right term because development has every single discipline involved with it. And I always say people that need everything wrapped up in a nice little bow at the end of every day are not cut out to be real estate developers. And the story about Fordham is an interesting one because when I applied to Fordham, 
I discovered that I owned a home, a motorcycle, two cars, um, and a boat. And it turned out I didn't own any of those things, but those, those items were in my name based on my stepfather. And that led to a very difficult period for me because I needed to go in and unpack all of this with Fordham so that I could qualify for the scholarship that they gave me. It was in part a academic scholarship as well as a scholarship based on need. And so I had this great overture from Fordham where I felt like I could afford to go and it would all work out. And then lo and behold, I stumbled into a part of my life that I was not aware of. And it took a fair amount of tenacity, I think courage, and in many ways, just conviction that I really wanted to do this to try to convince a whole group of people that I did not have the the net worth that, that it looked like I had on paper. Wow. And, and as a 17, 18-year-old, you're talking to Fordham about that as against your stepdad or your ex-stepdad? I hope you're yeah, at that time. Yeah, my 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 father ended up <laughs> in. Um, it turned out he was he went to federal prison for tax evasion. He believed that it was taxation without representation in this country. This was not what our founding fathers wanted. And he was a river pilot, and he had to file his taxes on a quarterly basis. They were not taken out of his income, and so he was in this constant battle with the IRS. And it was a battle he ultimately lost because he ended up serving time based on his principle. My mother's marriage had disintegrated at that time. So it wasn't as if uh, I was acting against him, even though, in fact, what he did related to my financial standing caused me an extraordinary amount of agita. But I think ultimately, I, I figured it out with Fordham, and they understood what was happening, and they dealt with it and gave me the scholarship that they originally offered me. Well. Congratulations. <laughs> so I don't know so, if I ever went into that level of detail regarding that little um, <laughs> snippet of my life, but I can say that, you know, learning how to cobble together the funds to go to college, particularly a private university, is again another moment in your life when you step up and show up or you don't end up where you want to be. And in those early years, I really had to fight for what I wanted. And therefore, when I achieved getting into Fordham. When I was there, I was there to, to learn and I was there to excel. And because of that, I ended up, despite the fact that I worked two jobs, I ended up a summa cum laude Phi Beta Kappa. And that, of course, paved the way for the possibilities that followed college, including the Urban Fellowship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I, I think you, you hope, even through your career, that when you get to be a master, Maybe life gets easy, and coasting is the wrong word because none of us want to coast, but you, you, you don't want to have to rise to a challenge every hour. And I think one thing that you may find is that you're rising to those challenges every hour still. Matt, that's so right. I always say I slay the dragon every day. Yeah. And, you know, being a dragon slayer, it's exciting and adventurous, but it's not the way you want to live every day of your life. And I agree with you. One needs to learn how to dial it back. And okay, if things aren't easy and if there's no struggle, I'm, I'm particularly good with struggle. I agree with you. At some point in our lives, we've earned the right to not struggle anymore and to, like you said, possibly coast. I'm probably not great at coasting, but I think I'm better at it now than I was, you know, a decade ago. Uh, understandable. Okay. So then talk about graduating forum, becoming an urban fellow and winding your way into real estate. I like this story because what it reminds me of is that a project manager, uh, you know, as I am, it need not have every bit of the project managed. And so I, I won this amazing fellowship where I had two periods, a summer and an academic year, where I was able to dabble in New York City government. Under Mayor Koch, it was the city's recruitment process to try to get young individuals 
to commit to public service before going into the private sector. And I applied for the fellowships and I won not one, but two. And so this is a program where you actually interview with commissioners inside of New York City government. And because you're on a scholarship fund, you come from a different budget line. It doesn't cost the agency anything to have you on board. And so you are a hot commodity and everybody wanted an urban fellow. And so mm-hmm. whether you, you know, you could sit with the police commissioner, you could sit with the deputy mayor or the head of economic development. And so the program encourages you to go on a tour, if you will, of all of the different agencies of your interest. And I did that. And just purely because I wanted to keep my lens wide, I interviewed at the Public Development Corporation, which is now the Economic Development Corporation. Now, you should know I was on my way to law school and I thought I wanted to go into the field of criminal justice, particularly as it relates to juveniles. So going to see a real estate economic development agency was clearly outside of (laughs) the realm of what I thought I wanted to do. And I remember walking into the office and thinking, wow, this is so grown up. There's carpet. There's, it's, it's a corporation. There's a president, mm-hmm. not a commissioner. There's air conditioning. It's just lovely. It was a really horrible summer. And as you might recall, the city was just coming out of a fiscal crisis. It was a pretty brutal place to work. And so I kind of thought, wow, this is such a sophisticated environment. Maybe I'll spend the summer here and I'll get really serious about criminal justice in September when I have that second fellowship. And so purely by serendipity. I landed this position and I was able to work directly for the president's office. And I Mm -hmm. found myself over at City Hall meeting with the deputy mayor for economic development, Alara Townsend. And I was thrust into some of the largest, most complicated real estate transactions in all of New York City, sitting across from some of the biggest developers. And I really had to pinch myself. And it was at that point in time, that summer, that I realized I had real estate in my veins because my entire worldview shifted and I agreed to do the second fellowship with the same agency and I was able to put myself in a position of being a project manager and that was the beginning of my professional love affair with real estate development. Unbelievable. You are the first person I've interviewed in the thousands of interviews I've done who got into real estate because it had air conditioning. I've never heard that before. <laughs> it's important to be honest. And, and when you are it. you know, young in your 20s and you're living in the hot New York City, a sweltering environment, I thought, you know, I can hang out here for a summer. And so uh, that is, in fact, the truth. That's exactly what, what lured me into economic development initially. <laughs> That's great. Congratulations. And we're happy you did that. So, so then what, what brought you to Forest City? So because, as I said, I had this unbelievable perch from which I was able to meet with and get involved with a lot of large real estate transactions, I eventually became part of the corporate retention program. And those were the days when companies were picking up and moving to Plano, Texas or out to the Jersey coast to save money because it was so very expensive to live and work and run a business in New York. And Mayor Koch was serious about corporate retention. And so we had a whole division inside of the Economic Development Agency. And I ran that group and it was my responsibility to try to keep Bear Stearns, if you remember Bear Stearns, in New York City because they were threatening to to move to New Jersey. And Bruce had the building and I sat across from Bruce and Bear Stearns and had sort of a tri-party negotiation. And what I was vying for was the retention of the jobs and the creation of job training programs inside of the Metro Tech Complex here in Brooklyn that would basically give the city a return on its investment because there were going to be benefits given to Bear Stearns and the building that it would occupy to keep them in New York City. And so in that process, I spent a fair amount of hours with Bruce. And uh, I, I was I completely 
I mean, it was beyond intimidating to sit with Bruce Ratner because at the time and still, he is a legend in the world of New York City real estate, found him to be exceptionally reasonable, fair, civic-minded. And so it, it stuck with me. And then years later, he called and asked if I wanted to come and talk to him about possibly moving over to his shop. And mm-hmm. so it was the work in the public development that led me to realize I could do the same public-private partnership, but on the private side, pay back all those loans and you know ultimately um, earn, earn a really good living. And so it was, for me, just such an amazing find. And it was such a blessing that I could, all of the, the substance associated with public development was happening on the private side. And it was something I was adept at on the public side. And now I realized I could do it on the private side. And so I made that transition. And that was over 22 years ago. Uh-huh. And just to I'm not asking how old you are now, but when you, you said many years later, he called and you took the job. So how old were you when you joined Forest City? I joined Forest City in, I was 30 years old. I joined okay. in 1994. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and that's great because the 30s are, you know, from a career point of view, that run, that decade between your 30s and your 40s is, you know, for me, it was where I found my professional passion and also created my family life. And so it's a really great decade for me. And it was in large part because of the run I had as a real estate developer, because, of course, we are what we build. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I managed to, to jump into some really exciting projects during that 10-year period. Yeah. And one thing, so you're now president and CEO of the New York part of Forest City, but you describe yourself as a project manager. And one of the things I always believe is that people in their careers, they start and they become real in a certain role, and then they take that role forward as they grow and expand. But you still use the word project manager to describe yourself, and that's what you learn to do during your 30s. So maybe talk a little bit about what that special skill is and all the balancing acts you have to do. That's great. So now my project is really people. So Mm -hmm. I'm really chief talent officer because while I love the art of the deal and I enjoy negotiating, when you become CEO and president, there's such a temptation, at least there was for me, to continue to drive the project management side of the business, which is all of the intricate details of the project itself and Mm -hmm. how it's important to, to move forward, live with a great sense of urgency in doing all of that, but at the same time, have a certain kind of patience so that you can take the long view because these are large projects with a pretty significant risk profile. And you're not building into any one market when you build at this scale, you're building through markets. So lots mm-hmm. of considerations. And it's, I always say the best job I ever had was the job before this one, because I was able to do all of the transactional work and I was able to you know, drive the results. And to be honest, you know, projects are not as complicated as people. It's always about the people. And so now I consider my work to be, I need to, 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 to build and support great people so that those great people can build great buildings. And that's something I tell myself often because I, there is always an, a temptation to tell someone how to do something when you see it going in a certain direction or mm-hmm. make the decision or get to the punchline. And, you know, as a CEO and as a president, I'm building talent. And, you know, I work as hard and drive as hard as I ever have, but I, it's in a different way. And so I would say that project management indeed, but it's a different kind of project management at a different level with a lot more at stake because the future of the company is, of course, you know, it's our, our finest resource, which is our, our talent. Right. Well, if you can't leverage through people, it, you can't be a CEO. It doesn't exist. But you also, I think, have to be the master. You have to learn the heck out of what it is you do, that project management skill 
you had the crucible of it in your 30s and you dealt with some of the biggest, most complex projects around. You know why that's true, Matt? Because the respect factor. I mean, I've never had uh, difficulty leading troops and taking people up uh, very steep inclines and, you know, dealing with the highs and lows of the real estate market, the trials and tribulations of large scale projects, because people know that I know the business. And so a team can be inspired and we can really suffer together through thick and thin when they know that I've been there and that I've confronted a lot of the day-to-day challenges. And so I agree that it's not as if I came from a different business or I just dealt on one side of the business. I was able over the course of those two decades to really immerse myself in the kinds of challenges that each and every one of the folks on my team go through every day. And that does afford me enormous trust. I have a high trust equation with a lot of the, Mm -hmm. the people here because of that. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes people, you know, as a recruiter, sometimes people say, well, just get me a generalist who knows how to manage and, you know, people can manage anything. And I I think you have to be a master in most things. You have to be a master at it so that you can manage well. I think I agree with you. So talk about, you have a lot of projects that you worked on and a lot of iconic, exciting, challenging projects, which is also what Forest City is known for. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But maybe tell the story of one of the projects that was the most challenging and the moment where you got to shine in making it happen. Well, they're like your children, so you never have yeah. a favorite, but there are you know, times when they stand out for different reasons. So the New York Times building for me was really the, the breakout project for me professionally. It started because we were invited to participate in a competition where the Times selected five developers. We were clearly the dark horse. We were not the Park Avenue developer, and we were the Brooklyn folks that, that got put on the list because the Times wanted to run a fair and balanced process based on merit. And we had just finished the project on 42nd Street, the Madame Tussauds and and the movie theater. We did a very complicated project with the very same public agencies the Times was going to have to deal with. And so we were put on the list, but we clearly were considered a long shot. And for that, I went into Bruce and said, I would really like to try and chase this. The RFP was sent to me because I was working one of the personal relationships of one of the advisors. And this individual came to know me and the company and felt that we would give a good, we you know, make a run at it and we would do a fine job of fighting for the business. And Bruce said to me, Marianne, we are never, ever going to be selected to build the headquarters for the New York Times. And I think you're wasting your time. And I said, well, if you can indulge me, I'd like to waste my time and your time and the company's Mm -hmm. time just because I think I should try. And if, you know, I'll fail and I'll learn from it. Do I have your support? And Bruce gave me his support, however, you know, reluctantly in believing that it would be a bit of a folly. And from November of 1999 until Valentine's Day of the year 2000, we were in a fierce competition where we had many, many presentations, and we were aiming to be both the developer and the partner to build this iconic building in their namesake. Mm-hmm. They move every hundred years this is a huge thing for New York City, and so it was just for me beyond captivating to have the, the thought of having a partner like the New York Times and to build for the Gray Lady and to own half of the building in which the New York Times occupied it. It was like, you know. A, a, 
hitting the developer lottery, if you will. Yeah. And so to, to the credit of the New York Times, they had scorecards for each and every individual on each and every team, and they rated each company. And because they were a newspaper, they had a deadline, and they said they would make this decision by February 14th of 2000, and they indeed made the decision, and we won the business. And in many ways, while it never is one person that is responsible for anything like a project of this scope, often there's one person that's most associated with it. And I think that this project became, you know, Marianne's project. And so sometimes that was awesome and sometimes it was awful. Um, you know, there were yeah. there were times when the project was built through 9-11. The project had great risk. It was a spec building. I remember days when the company would say, we think you're going to take the company down with this level of risk. And there were other days when they would say, I was going to take the company to the next level. And so it was a highly schizophrenic process. But through the, the, the competition and through the putting together of a beautiful, iconic building with a great architect and a great partner, I learned the business. And I learned the business in a next level kind of way because it was the best in class in every single way. And I think it really put me in a place where I, I just wouldn't, I don't, I didn't do my job the same after going through that process. Little things, Matt, like any time we had a milestone event, the New York Times would call us to the Eagle Room and they would toast the event. And we were always about, what have you done for me lately? And what's mm -hmm. next? And the New York Times taught us that you need to stop and mark the moments and that that's what gives people the drive and the hope and the inspiration to, to keep plowing forward. So little things like that. And then, of course, super big, you know, professional lessons learned along the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting that they did mark those moments. I keep forgetting to do that in, in my business. And I think we all do, right? We just keep running hard. And people who you work with don't take the time to appreciate you that much. That's true. And as a leader, you know, because they we, they were the, the alpha partner, obviously, they were the New York Times, they were the great lady, they had AAA rate of credit at the time. What they wanted to do, we did, right? So when they called, we came. And Bruce and I would, you know, head uptown and be like, we have to do this again. But what they did for us was they forced it, right? And then enforcing it, they made it part of our ritual. And it's mm -hmm. a ritual that I now follow with my team members, you know, many years later. Right. So, so many comments came out of this part of the conversation that I wanted to follow up on. One is you were risking the company on a deal of this size and scale. And Forest City is known for taking on massive, huge, complicated, risky deals. That's part A. And then part B, Forest City restructured recently into a restructure where maybe it'll be harder to do those kind of transactions. So talk about what it was like then doing that and how it fit within the company and then maybe going forward if the company will or won't be able to kind of focus on such gargantuan, challenging projects. It's a very insightful point. Yes. So Forest City Ratner Companies in New York was known for high risk, high reward impactful placemaking projects. And mm -hmm. in other gateway cities, we were as well. But remember, this is a Midwestern company out of Cleveland. And so there is a sort of conservative side to the company that always was a juxtaposition of the side of the company that was placemaking and uh, right. gateway cities, right? So it, it, this is a, a remarkable thing to say, uh, but I will share it with you. About five years ago, Chuck Ratner told a group of people in my presence, that they boarded a plane to come to New York to tell me and Bruce that we were not going to go forward with the New York Times building, that there was too much risk, 
and that given that 9-11 had happened and the world was a different place and the condemnation risk was too high and the financing markets were too unstable and they didn't feel comfortable doing the project. And when Chuck told that story, I said to him, Chuck, I do not remember that conversation. And he said, Mm -hmm. well, that's because, Marianne, you never let us have it. What you did was you brought to the meeting experts from all across the industry. And these experts told us how the real estate market was going to hold up, how the office rents were going to get achieved, how construction was going to come out well, and how the city was going to be a better place because of this building. And by the time we were finished, we were on board. And it's just, to me, remarkable how the power of your conviction, it didn't even allow me to consider the possibility that they had come to tell me that we weren't moving forward. So instead, we went and got a partner, and that helped de-risk the transaction in a way that felt the company felt that they could move forward. So there are many, many ways to, to, to find solutions to, to problems. And so just to bring it forward to the present tense, we are a REIT. Uh, as of January 1, uh, a year passed, and REITs don't favor a ton of development risk on their portfolio. And so we have right-sized our development as a as a, uh, a function of our overall asset base. And so while we have a knack for high barriers to entry markets, and we tend to really like the complicated stuff, I do think that some of the projects that we did in the past are not well-suited for a REIT. So something like Pacific Park Brooklyn with, with that type of a, of a beginning, a decade-long beginning with equity that's got a meter running on it that's quite high. Those are very, very challenging circumstances. They're challenging in any event, but they're far more challenging when you're dealing with public markets and investors that are impatient. And I'd like to think that we're going to continue to do the really interesting projects. I don't know if you know about our Cornell Tech project on Roosevelt Island. That is a a really big project but it's not big in terms of risk profile or in terms of the, the size. It's big in terms of the idea and the impact that that new campus and that new neighborhood can have on all of New York City. So that's what we're going to try and do. Focus on impactful and big, but maybe less on the on the risk horizon than we perhaps have in the past. Mm. I, I think the de-risk idea is a wonderful one, and it, and it works. I have a story of a company that actually my wife was talking with who did a giant project. I'll leave the name of the company out. And she was trying to help them de-risk and the CEO at the time who later was canned, I said, no, no, we want to keep it all for ourselves because the upside's too great. And you mm. know, that never works out. <laughs> never and developers works out. tend not to like to share, you know, so you're that instinct of not wanting to share. I much prefer sharing risk and sharing upside. It's, it's partly because of having gotten knocked around along the way, right? So yeah. we're the product of our experiences. So I, I appreciate that comment a lot because I have no problem de-risking. You have to know how to do it in a way that doesn't eke out what makes the project special or what makes it sing. But if you can figure right. out how to keep it special, but also de-risk it, then um, it's a of a eureka. Right. Well, for the industry, I hope that Forest City continues to go after those projects because there's few developers willing to take that on. And we need those kind of projects done. And someone has to pick up the slack if, if you can't be there. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm going to say this, that we have narrowed down our businesses to only core markets. So instead of being in Manhattan, Kansas, we're doubling down in New York. And so I think that What will allow us to do what you just said is because we're going to be in San Francisco, Washington, New York, and 
LA. And, and, and when we narrow it down, we can take the equity we have and we can focus on concentrating it in great markets where we can achieve great things and still be known for the placemaking that I think makes us really among a, a small few that can think this big. Right. So so let's talk about that. Let's talk about placemaking and what that means. And I'll use a bunch of words at once and we can go into it. But placemaking is, is important in our world because our cities are finding new places to make those places. I guess that's the right thing. Mm-hmm. And and then the second is, as you make those places, you're a lightning rod. And the third thing is you really need to know what you're doing because they're risky and they could screw up easily, which they have in the past. So what? talk about the secret sauce to be the one to be able to succeed at that and what that takes. So I'll be specific about a, a particular project because in your description okay. of all of those really important characteristics, you're describing Pacific Park, Brooklyn, which is a neighborhood that we've been creating for well over a decade. And it has all the hair on it that a large uh, public-private project partnership might have on it. And it's really the uber example of of what you just said, because there's such responsibility on the part of the developer to build in one of the finest neighborhoods in all of the country, the confluence of some of the most historic and deeply diverse neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And so there's a very, very tall order of a high standard, if you will, on the Pacific Park Brooklyn project, which started as the Atlantic Yards project. Mm -hmm. And it's really important as a developer that you feel the heft of that responsibility because only then will you take it and, and apply the tender care and feeding that's necessary to make sure that it delivers. And delivering in the instance of Pacific Park, Brooklyn means creating a a great place, you know, weaving this new place into the rich neighborhoods that surround it, landing an arena in the heart of historic Brooklyn and making it work in a way that it seems as if it was always there. These are very, very difficult challenges. And so I'm really proud of the fact that the arena, which is a very good neighbor and a big part of this downtown Brooklyn experience now has really done good things for the community, despite the fact that it was feared and reviled by many. We fought 35 different legal actions before we ever put a shovel in the ground, and we built that arena on the heels of a great recession. And there are many, many ways in which that building could have failed uh, the community, it could have failed the company, and it could have failed the basketball team it was built for. But in, in, in our commitment to great architecture, in our commitment to getting it built and finishing it and not cheaping out and not ignoring quality of life issues, we were able to deliver a world-class building with an exceptional experience for people in the building and outside the building. So this is a building that you can see the scoreboard from the subway entrance. When you pop up out of the subway, if you look through Barclays, you can see the score of the game. This doesn't happen in a typical arena in America. And so the fact that we were able to build a building that was as much a treasure on the outside as uh-huh. it is on the inside is is something extraordinary. If you know anything about arenas around the country, they're usually fairly forgettable on the outside, and hopefully right. on the inside, they're high-performing. But architecture and placemaking and circulation, those are not things that necessarily show it, up high on right. the list. And let me ask you a question. It's funny. I was just yesterday in Nashville with a ULI event, and we were touring the city and we looked at the downtown arena, which is an outdoor venue, and they did the same thing. They accomplished all of those goals. It was an extraordinary music venue that doubles as a park when it's not being done for wow, music. That's great. And 
But how as a for-profit developer do you justify putting those extra dollars in to make it work that well? Does the return come back or is that a risk or does it does it come back on the the next phases? So in the instance of Barclays, we had some public subsidy, which helped on some of the premiums related to infrastructure. If you are in a good market, you know, the brand Brooklyn, if you will, delivered the value because whether it's the sponsorship revenue that we achieved by signing on Barclays or the value of the basketball team because it played inside of this building in this market, those are the calculations that one has to do. And of course, we could have been off, but when we were selling the bonds to build the building through every forgettable office park in the Northeast with Goldman Sachs, I just remember being shocked at how it was really about Brooklyn. And people were going to buy the bonds, not because they necessarily believed in the Nets, but they believed that Brooklyn was underserved, that it was a potent brand that had been yet to be unleashed. And I think in that way, we believed that. And again, you don't want to believe your story if it's not a believable story, but we were so deeply committed to that story. And in that way, we built a very successful arena. I would tell you that this is public information. We didn't make oodles of money, but in many ways, that arena was a was the cornerstone of a project that would follow, which is what the work of the day, which is the 6,430 units of housing, of which 2,250 are affordable. And so we didn't necessarily want to laugh all the way to the bank on the arena. It was really important to kick off the project. And in these subsequent verticals, we're going to make the returns that we set out to make. And so that's, again, about the long haul, right, and not thinking short term and building a, a, you know, a forgettable arena because by building a high-quality arena, with a beautiful green roof, we've enhanced the value of all of the towers that we will build around it. And that's the kind of thinking that a developer that's really involved in placemaking needs to have. Absolutely true. And and usually it's multiple parties who are making that happen. Yes. Not just the master developer doing it all. Maybe there's subsidies that make some of that happen or the government's involved. Well, in fact, I can tell you that the Geary building, which I know you know of, ULI mm-hmm. has been very kind to us in, in, in showcasing that building. That's a building that was built through the recession at 76 stories with 900 plus units, all rental. There was a point in time when we were just so afraid that we were building a building that would never get leased and that we had far too much real estate exposure. But on the other hand, we were building with Frank Geary. This was the most vertical he had ever, ever gone. And, you know, brand Geary would suggest that if you could build it, they would come. But of course, lots of unknowns and the lenders weren't giving you any credit for the fact that Frank Geary was the architect, right? Mm -hmm. So in building that building, we had contemplated stopping at the 40th floor once the recession really kicked in. And I had to go out and have those conversations with those multiple parties and those partners that you mentioned to try to keep everybody on the same page. And one notable conversation was calling Frank Erie, which nobody wanted to do, to suggest that we'd possibly decapitate his gorgeous (laughs) design. And I remember saying to Frank, this is what's going on. There's a lot of real estate exposure. Uh, Some of us believe that we should continue to build and others believe we should cap our risk and cap the height of the tower. And Frank said to me, what do you need from me? And I said, well, well, there's three different places we're going to go for some relief. And every time we talk about Frank Erie, 
your royalty guys show up. And, you know, it's like when you drive that Mercedes past the museum in, in, in Bilbao, you know, it, it, it costs money. And we were being basically charged for the benefit of using Frank's name if we were to include it in the name of the building. And I said, so Frank, if you could give us your brand and we could use that with reckless abandon, we might be able mm-hmm. to help marketing. And he said, Marianne, I will babysit for people who live at the top of that tower if you continue Beautiful. to build it. <laughs> so <laughs> Frank really did uh, deliver his part in making sure that that beautiful, iconic building got built. Oh, that's an exceptional story. So we, let's change gears and let's change gears from Forest City and your buildings to more about Marianne. And one of the things that's clear talking to you, and, and you even said it when we talked about the New York Times building, but I've seen it in the press about you, is that there's a Marianne brand as well as a Forest City brand. And you have to be somewhat of a self-promoter within the context of a company to be successful in your career and to do some of the things that you've gotten accomplished. Talk a little bit about that. That's an interesting way of putting putting it because I always say that I have a perch or a platform here and Mm -hmm. it's really about the platform. And yes, it's about Marianne Gilmartin, but it's really the platform and I am the spokesperson for the platform. And it's for the last five years, Bruce Ratner has retreated and has had really no interest in taking the lead and being out in front and being the voice of the company. And I've been the beneficiary of that. I've not only been the beneficiary of the fact that Bruce Ratner has created a meritocracy and delivered on that meritocracy in every year of this company's existence. And so it was the best man or woman for the job. But at some point, he gave me room and space and and encouraged me to build the brand of the company in part around you know, who I am and, and how we run the business. And I am deeply grateful for Bruce because if you if you have ever read anything about the company prior to my becoming the president and CEO, it any article always started with Bruce C. Ratner built the Barclays Center or is buying the Nets or is is building the New York Times building. And then somewhere in the body of the article, it would say Forest City. But it always was right. about Bruce. And that was an intimidating truth when, when I was asked to take over the company because I was stepping into mm-hmm. – enormous shoes. And I was on you know, really on the, the shoulders of giants. And so I think it was intimidating. And then I think I realized, I must have realized along the way that as a woman heading a real estate development company in a city like New York, that I had certain characteristics around my story that were interesting. And I always say that, you know, the, the pool is still fairly shallow. I am the beneficiary of the fact that there are not enough women being given credit and opportunity for their talents. And so I've decided that it's important for the company, for the brand and my commitment to Bruce, but it's also really important to the industry because I am really a proxy for all the women around the country in this industry who have a lot to contribute. And I think I'm representing. And so it's really about feeling like if I don't do that, then the real change that needs to take place won't take place. So 60 to 65% of the developers in this company are women. That's a really staggering statistic. That's a huge number. Other yes. Company. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, I think it's just remembering that the day that I'm no longer at Forest City, yes, I'm, a, I'm an accomplished professional, but a lot of this has to do with, with the brand that I am affiliated with and the buildings that we've been able to build as a company. And the mistake people can make is thinking that it's really about them because I don't really think it is. I think it's about, you know, you are what you build and you are uh, operating as the leader of something much bigger and much more important than yourself. 
Uh -huh. I think it's true, and it's interesting how you put it, because maybe Bruce led the way for this. There is some balance between an iconic leader, not too iconic a leader, but a leader whose name's out there, and making it real, making it personal, versus purely making it institutional. And, hmm. and I think there's a great benefit to be able to look in the eyes of a person, not just a company, and the person says, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to do it well. I think that's actually really meaningful in the context of the people you have to convince to get through some of these difficult projects. You know why I like that? Because I, I used to say that in the 80s, nobody wanted to be a real estate developer. I mean, it was one step above a car salesman. Everybody was rushing off to the internet to discover gold. And because I tripped into it and didn't really have a sense of what I wanted to be when I grew up, I, I managed to be in the industry at a time when there weren't a lot of people, my contemporaries, and right. there weren't certainly a lot of women. And I've said to myself that now, suddenly, everybody wants to be a real estate developer, you know? It's changed over the year because everybody always loves real estate. People always want to look at apartments and talk about purchase, you know, houses, because it's interesting and it's 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 about where we call home, right? Or where right. we call work. But I think it's been remarkable for me how real estate development has taken on such a glamorous kind of a dimension because back in the day, it was the, you know, sleazy real estate developer down on the Jersey coast, you know, paying off, <laughs> uh, you know, waste uh, management companies to, to get the job done. So I feel really proud that as a woman and as somebody really believes that we are contributing to our community, that I talk about it because it's very easy to create a negative caricature of a real estate developer, particularly in a city like New York. Mm -hmm. I, I think it is, although I think that caricature continues to exist either about the developer or about what we do. And certainly NIMBYism jumps on top of that to try to reject change and reject things happening and reject densification, which is kind of the answer to some of the problems in, in many of our cities. And so exactly. not, not only as individuals, but I think as an industry, we still have to raise the profile that we are placemaking and not those used car salesmen. I think it's still there. And more people are living in cities, as you know, uh, than ever right. in the history of the world. So this issue of densification and learning how to build high-quality, transit-oriented development is really going to be the secret to creating and keeping our cities great. And, you know, 21st century cities exist outside of the United States. And we have to remember that we need to keep our eye on that and focus on it because, you know, we want New York to be a global city. And when you travel and you see what other places in the world look like, you know, we need to, to step up our game and we need to continue to deliver the kind of quality and the value that other cities deliver around the globe. Absolutely. Well, I feel it. Maybe I'm into urbanism and I live downtown in San Francisco, but in Nashville, I saw it last week. Um, I was in Tokyo six months ago with my wife on vacation and the urban fabric thrilled us, just thrilled us. And so seeing it around the world and seeing it in our own cities and, and it's inevitable. So it should be inevitable in a positive way and as well done as possible versus slapped up. Agreed. So maybe last question. We we get to be nosy with, with women about their lives. We, we don't ask these questions of men, but we ask them of women. But how do you, and, and we talked a little bit about finding those times to celebrate and step back, but also one has a family and one has a personal life. 
So how do you balance it all? How do you make that happen together? The first thing I do is say that they'll never really be balanced because it's really a, you know, it's a trick you play with yourself and you constantly fail. And I think it's more like a seesaw and you're looking mm-hmm. for that seesaw to be at equilibrium, but most of the times it's not exactly so. Sometimes you feel like a great parent. Other times you feel like a great professional and every once right. in a while it feels like you're dynamite all around. But here's the thing about me. I knew deep in my core that if I wasn't able to be the kind of mother that I need to be, then I couldn't be the successful professional that I wanted to be. And I remember going to Bruce when I had my first pregnancy and saying, look, I need to be with this child as much as I possibly can, as long as I deliver here at the office. And that means perhaps one day I need to work from my home and I need to be able to unplug for a few hours and then get back into it. Bruce was so supportive of that. And uh, I came to be known as doing my best work after after 11 p.m. Uh, you know, sleep is clearly overrated in my world, but I would say that raising three children, there's no way that I was going to look back and say, what have I done? I've forsaken my best years with them for a career. And so in many ways, I feel fortunate. In our business, you eat what you kill. And if you're delivering over and over again and creating value and working hard and leading people to make great choices and build great things, you can step out and go to the, you know, to the basketball game. You can be there for your children. You can decide that after you go home for dinner, you're going to go back into it and work. So I didn't ever really have to travel too much, which allowed me to always be sort of present. And then most of all, when I'm present, I'm present. So when I'm with my kids, that kind of presence, which you know can't be measured in hours, but really in the quality of the experience and the, the kind of parenting and the relationships that I have with my kids. And I, I feel really, really lucky that they consider my work to be part of our lives, but it's not like I bring it home every night. It's just that when you have the good fortune of having concrete examples of your toiling, I can bring uh-huh. my kids on a hoist. I can bring them to uh, the top of New York by Geary. I, my boys were ball boys for the Nets. These are unbelievable experiences <laughs> that I have been able to weave. I have a lot of fairy dust, Matt, you know, and so I've used my, right. my professional fairy dust to create motivation and attention on the part of my wonderful children. And so now they're 19, 17, and 13, and I, I've watched them grow up, but they've grown up with, with the buildings and they've grown up sort of in the business and they understand what I do. And I think that they're proud. And I think we've made a life together that involves mm-hmm. sacrifice, hard work, and, you know, the appreciation for connections, connections of all types, including the kind of connections you need to have in your family. And so, you know, I run at a very fast pace in the sense that I probably have subordinated and sacrificed in some ways the kind of quiet time and the kind of introspection that maybe as my kids now are older, I'll get more of. I can't say that I'm up on all of my private reading. I can't say that I have gone off and taken adult vacations, uh, but these are things that will come down the road. But the sacrifices that I've made have been more than worth it at every turn because I've been able to build uh, a wonderful family and have a career that you know most people will work hard, but probably will never have the kind of blessing that I have to, to have achieved the kind of stuff we've achieved in the company. And then to be sort of on the top of it is, I'm, I'm just very fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was with a group of of young people last week and we were talking about careers in real estate and I said something and I don't know if it was true. So maybe this was the idealistic me thinking about it. But I believe that senior executives in real estate often 
love what they do. They're making a contribution. Some of the words we've used in this conversation, like placemaking, these are things that drive people. And there's a gift to the passion that we bring. We're not just out there on Wall Street trying to make as much money as we can trading pieces of paper. And I think you bring that to your family. I think you teach your kids that and they see that you're making a difference and that you're engaged and there's some less hours with them, but the love of what you do and the impact you create, I think, teaches them every day. I think that's really spot on. I love that because that's, I think you said it really articulately, but that's that kind of purposefulness. It's infectious and it mm-hmm. also models incredible behavior for the children. So I do agree with that. You know, a happy, they say, a, you know, a happy, what do they say? A happy mom is a happy house. I just think, a, you know, a happy professional is, is a happy parent as well. And that kind of fulfillment, it definitely moves through every facet of your life. And I think it starts and ends at the home. I totally agree. It's it's actually happy wife is a happy life. At least that's oh, that's what it is. This guy's <laughs> talking get it right. about all the time. <laughs> a happy wife is a happy life. Yeah, that's what you it got is. it. So it's very important. And if it if you just let them work, that's okay too, as long as they're happy. That way. I wonder if you've ever asked that question. Does that have to get revised in any way, or is it it's if, if, as long as you're a wife, it applies. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org.